Ever have someone tell you, man, you really need to let go of all that stress? Well, let me tell you, there's nothing that causes more stress than somebody telling you to let it go. <laughs> I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And on this program, you're going to be enlightened. You're going to be motivated. You're going to be inspired by everything from worldwide experts to normal everyday people who are out there trying to get rid of stress, overcoming all sorts of obstacles, facing their realities, and living with passion purpose and fulfillment and they're here to tell us how we can do it too i don't think there's a more important topic today bill than how to deal with stress that there is more stress around than there ever has been and and research and surveys will prove that so we're going to chat with a world-renowned expert on stress and learn about its effect on the aging process also our colleague amy sweezy will join us this hour she's going to introduce us to an anchor from the weather network who went public with her battle against breast cancer Answer in a very insightful way. And then another survivor story from a woman we met at a Growing Boulder race, uh, the Growing Boulder Division in the Track Shack Running Series. And we'll take you back for a Growing Boulder classic interview with the King of Swing. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives. This is Growing Boulder. You, you all caught me here just kind of making a few plans on what I need to do a little bit later. Don't we all make to-do lists? I, I think we think about what we need to do at work the next day constantly. We, we make a plan about it. We visualize the things that our bosses want us to do. We prepare ourselves for the workday. But when it comes to our own well-being, we do next to nothing. That needs to change. I'm Bill Schaefer, and right now on Growing Boulder, we're going to talk about dealing with something most of us just don't do. Dealing with our stress. Admitting that we're stressed and understanding that we better figure out how to cope with it. Our next guest, well, she's one of the most interesting people out there. She's a leader in the field of stress and biological aging. And yeah, those two things are connected. She's a world-renowned psychologist, a best-selling author, and her latest book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease, is something you need to have on your to-read list. Excited to have the chance to learn from Dr. Alyssa Apple. It sure is great to have you with us, Doc. How are you today? I'm just thrilled to be here. Can I just applaud what you just said? Because like, you just covered the most important message and messages. We really don't take our mental health nearly as seriously enough until it gets to the point where it impairs us. And then it's serious and it's late. Don't you think that for some reason, I mean, we have this idea that, um, you know, taking care of our mental side, that's, that's for when we're broken. Why worry about that until something serious happens? But we go to the doctor every year and get a checkup. We could all benefit from a mental health checkup every single year as well. I love that idea. That's taking it seriously. And that fits right in with why I called it the stress prescription, because it's serious business. We're way out of line as a society. You know, more than half the population feels overwhelmed by stress. That's that's more than bad. Stress is the precursor to depression, anxiety disorders, and all the health problems that we suffer from when we get older, it brings them on earlier. So it's serious. We need to take this as seriously as a medical disorder. And if not, we will. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
so I keep thinking about this. Is stress something that, that we've always had? Has it always been around? Did my grandfather have the kind of stress I do? Or has the change in our lifestyle, has technology, has, has the way we live today, has it made stress just part of everyday life? <laughs> it's people love to argue about this. And, you know, I hear people trying to say our ancestors were just as stressed. They had different stressors. And we have data documenting levels of stress and stressful events and reactions over decades. We are more stressed now. It is most definitely related to the media use. You know, we're, we're front, re, front row seats in witnessing the traumas happening across the world. How could we not be affected? And in the other ways that media makes us feel so isolated and alone and the social stress of feeling that we're different, we're alone, that we're not good enough. It's common. It's a universal way our mind works, at least in the West. And it's kind of toxic. It's contributing to this chronic stress state we have. So we are more stressed and we can manage it better. And like you said, it's completely up to us to take it seriously. And there are things we can do. Well, let's talk about those in a second. But I, before we leave this topic uh, the, from the 35,000-foot level, so we have to accept that we're going to have stress. All of us are going to have it. The other thing we have to uh, accept is we have to deal with it because the way we've been taught to deal with it is, hey, suck it up, mister. Stress is for broken people. We've all had to deal with stress since we were school kids, so tough it out and get back in there. Mm-hmm. Yes. And especially men, you know, that, that they've been socialized to have those reactions. It's really powerful to have role models and social influencers and people like you to talk about mental health. It reduces the stigma and makes it less of a forbidden topic. Just even acknowledging right now, we just started 2023. What, what are the different feelings that people are having about it mixed? There, you know, we have a fresh new year and we still are carrying with us pandemic worries, financial strain, inflation, seeing climate change getting worse. It's all with us. Here's another aspect that we deal with on this program on Growing Bolder. Just the fact of aging. Is aging the most stressful time of life? I mean, we retire, we, we move out of the house we raised our kids in. Uh, some people leave everything behind and head for an unfamiliar retirement community in Florida. We have new aches and pains that we never had, physical limitations. We start to hear the clock ticking, loneliness, isolation. I could go on and on. How do you go through that without being overwhelmed and stressed and depressed? Let's talk about this. You can maybe shed some light on the data I'm about to tell you. Our stereotype of aging is exactly what you said. It's all of those negatives. And and it is true that when, you know, over 80, let's say, that because of the physical limitations or pain or um, disease, there is an, a, a dramatic increase in those types of stressors and there is more loneliness. but the data shows that with age, we become more resilient. We have lower stress, lower depression. So for example, in the latest survey on stress in America, I believe that maybe 60% of women felt overwhelming stress, young adults, and then over 65, it was more like 9%. How do you explain that? Let me just tell you my guess on why we see such lower levels of stress with let's say 65 to 80 years old. There is, there are some shifts 
that we can learn from and we can embody. Some of it is not sweating the small stuff, is having this larger perspective of life. Some of that might be from feeling the limited time you have left and not wanting to spend time worrying about small things, but really matching our time used to our priorities, which often is other people, helping other people, being with other people, and not anyone. There's also a shift with aging toward a smaller social network, a more positive emotional tone to our relationships. I think all of that's beautiful. I think we should be talking about that more. I love that answer. You also talk a lot about the shift from seeing yourself as the victim constantly or the prey mm-hmm. to seeing ourselves as the lion. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just a slight adjustment to our frame of mind as we deal with things that, that changes everything and really does help you not get overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So mindset, our you know, looking at our negative stress mindset, our negative beliefs about stress, and really embracing a positive stress mindset can help us be like the lion, can help us approach stressors with this really positive attitude that our body's listening to. And we can have a more adaptive stress response, a big rush of adrenaline and a big quick recovery. And that's in contrast to like when we're really telling ourselves, (laughs) we are not up for this, we are going to fail, we catastrophic things are going to happen. Our body listens to that and creates a more threat response, high cortisol, really, you know, a vasoconstrictor response. It's harder to recover from that. So what we're, our thoughts are important. We can think of some, some real stress strengths or shields to say to ourselves. And I give a lot of suggestions in the book. And you mentioned using our body for stress reduction. And I think that's what people forget the most, that we are like animals. We are not that different. We're evolved to mount a huge stress response with glucose and stress hormones. And then we're left with it to stew because we don't need to run like our ancestors did when we're stressed. We can run. We can do push-ups. We can do something to stress out our body and metabolize the stress response and, and so that we process it more quickly and recover more quickly. So that brings us to things like, um, well, certainly brisk walking. I mean, what's better in recovery from stress than to take brisk walking, listen to music, maybe talk to someone who we think is supportive. But um, the studies that that I review in the book are more about like high-intensity interval training And we know now that exercise is, of course, great for health and longevity, but also for toning up the the nervous system. The stress response of people who are fit is more resilient. And short bouts of stress to the body creates what we call hormetic stress, a positive stress that we can recover from. There are studies on hyperthermia and on ice exposure, and we're doing some of those studies and they look like they can be another powerful tool we can use to bring down our anxiety and that jittery stress energy in our body. And I think the reason that you're, you've written this book and dedicated who knows how much of your life to this topic is because it actually affects our longevity. It affects our health. And it's not just, a, uh, you know, you want to feel a little better. It means the world to all of us. So, so what message would you, would you like to conclude with? If we remember one thing, what do you hope it is? So you you laid it out pretty well at the beginning. We have chronic toxic stress that wears us out and that can be broken up. And the book is all about strategies, small nudges that we can do during the day that can reduce our daily stress. And then there's acute stress, which is not bad for us, that we need to reframe as positive and re-embrace that. And that's the kind of stress better or stress like a lion. 
So I hope there's one thing I, I will leave you with, which is I think that we also don't work on our mental health. We also don't cultivate emotional well-being. We we focus a lot on reducing stress symptoms and depression, and, and I do that a lot. But new strategies are showing that focusing on gratitude and the really everyday miracles that we can see, being kind to others, having self-compassion for ourselves, all of these bring joy that actually is incongruent with stress. We can't feel both at the same time very easily. So that's a whole nother set of strategies that I think might be the most powerful for a lot of people. You know, these are such important points. And folks, we really hope you just start to think about this in your life because you don't need to necessarily run off to a mental health counselor. Do you have friends? This is why it's important to have such a great social circle around you. If you have good friends that you can talk to, it goes a long way in relieving stress. Do you have clubs that you belong to or physical activities with groups of people that you see all the time? It can be a world of difference. It can refresh your outlook and let you know that you're not the only one. But this book, this book, really can provide what you need to help change your outlook and change your life. She is Dr. Alyssa Apple. The book is The Stress Prescription. It's a big deal. And she's written it in a proactive, helpful, and interesting way. Take control of your own life and learn to manage your stress. It's something that can make a difference to us all. You'll find out a lot more. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Check out Alyssa Appel, E-P-E-L, dot com for much, much more. She's a fascinating author and a fascinating person. Coming up, meet a Weather Network host who decided to fight her breast cancer battle on social media. And she talks to our Amy Sweezy about what we can learn from what she went through next on Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Well, we all have learned that cancer is really one of these great equalizers. It's a disease that really doesn't care who you are, rich or poor, young or old, celebrity or just a regular Joe. You might know the name Kim McDonald from the Weather Network. She waged a very public battle against breast cancer using her public persona as a way to reach out on social media and offer an unfiltered account of her cancer experience. And you know, Mark, who better than our Amy Sweezy to have a talk with her about about life, about gratitude, and about the weather. Take me back to that moment when you first heard the C word. What was your initial reaction hearing that you had cancer? Well, it's interesting, Amy. Thank you for having me. I knew I had breast cancer before the doctor said those words. I mean, I had so many changes in my breast that, you know, I started to use Dr. Google as we do. And I'm thinking, this is not good. So by the time I was actually diagnosed, and these things take time, you know, you have to have your mammogram and ultrasound, and they have to make sure everything's uh, on the up and up. And uh, once they did that, finally, they did a biopsy 
uh, on the spot, on the spot, as soon as I had my, um, as soon as I had my mammogram right away, they said, okay, you need to have an ultrasound that day. And then right after that, they said, okay, we're going to do a biopsy. And I said, oh, when is that happening? And they said, right now. So all of those things led me to believe, okay, I'm correct here. I have breast cancer. So by the time the surgeon actually said those words, I had mentally prepared myself, but I had self-diagnosed myself with something far more aggressive than what I had. So I thought I had inflammatory breast cancer based on all of the symptoms that I had. But when the surgeon told me I had stage 2B breast cancer, which was aggressive but not inflammatory, I was relieved. And I'm sure he was shocked to hear that. But when I thought I had inflammatory, I uh, I started just, you know, putting my ducks in a row. I have two daughters and a husband. And I thought, okay, I don't know how much time I have, maybe three years, maybe four tops. And I started to mentally think that. So yes, like everybody does, I, I got real scared when I thought I had breast cancer and especially inflammatory. But once I found out I had stage two, I thought, okay, I can do this. And you work on television in Canada. You're at the Weather Network, which is equivalent for those of us in the U.S. to the Weather Channel. So you're nationwide. So tell me a little bit, what was it like living through the diagnosis and then, of course, the treatment in the public eye? So... I had to step away to to do the treatment and I didn't want to just disappear. So I, I thought that it would be best if I made an announcement of some sort, let people know where I was going. So I put out a Facebook post and a, a Twitter post and, and basically said, I have been diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, I'm going to take some time off and, and go kick its butt. And I just, you know, a few words like that saying, you know, one in eight women are diagnosed. So many are diagnosed every single day. And, and now I'm one of them. And the feedback that I got immediately was shocking to me. Shocking. All these people that I guess have been watching me for years. I've been at the Weather Network now for 25 years this year were coming to my uh, coming as cheerleaders for me and just being incredible. So I had to start chemotherapy right away before I had a double mastectomy. So I started chemotherapy. I I was going to lose my hair. I didn't know how sick I was going to get. And I decided, you know, I'm going to be off work for close to a year. I don't want to disappear from people. And I I don't want to just stop for this. So I decided that I would start writing a blog and kind of documenting my journey. Because as much as I've had people in my life who have had breast cancer, I it's you don't really know until you have it. So I thought, you know, this might be a bit of an education for people. I'll start to write about it. And then I was invited to do a radio talk show. I didn't have to come in. I just had to call in. And once a week, I would talk about what it was like just living with breast cancer and what it felt like to go to chemotherapy, what it felt like to lose my hair. And it was really cathartic for me. I thought, wow, you know, not only was I, you know, getting it off my chest, so to speak, and that was very helpful for me. It was almost like I had, you know, therapy, (laughs) public therapy. But what I realized was that not only were people coming to help me, as far as supporting me and, you know, cards, flowers, lovely messages from friends, strangers, and family too, um, was that I started to help other people 
by talking about what I was going through. And that was something that I did not expect in any way. I had my hair shaved live on Facebook. I'd never done a Facebook live. And I said, why not? Let's just show, let's just show what this is like. And, and I'll talk about my diagnosis because I lost my hair pretty early on in the whole uh, journey. So I did a Facebook live and I started to get messages from people, women saying that they also had breast cancer, that they were afraid to lose their hair, but now watching my video, they have strength and they're ready to do it themselves. And I had a mother of three who said that she watched it with her kids and she wanted them to see what she was about to go through and so that they would be less afraid. And these were the kinds of messages that I did not anticipate. I didn't think that I was going to actually help other people who are going through the same thing I was. So that was an unexpected surprise and it just, it gave me so much strength and I felt like, okay, there is a reason for this. There's a reason I'm going through this. And now I, I have a purpose and it's not certainly all negative. Now you had your double mastectomy in 2017 and then it was after your chemo had ended, correct? That's right. So okay. chemo started in December and then double mastectomy in May. And then you decided to not do reconstruction. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, so... I didn't even know it was a decision to not have reconstruction at the beginning. Most women do uh, have it. And I just thought, well, that's just the way I will go as well. Being a, you know, in the public eye, I thought that seemed to be the right decision. So I was having a conversation with my oncologist about it. And he said to me, well, if you do have reconstruction, can you wait for three years? And I said, why? Why would I wait three years? And he right. said, because... If it comes back, we won't be able to detect it as quickly if you have reconstruction, if you have implants or something else. And I, I said, okay, well, in that moment, I said, how about I just don't have reconstruction? How about I just stay flat and not have any more surgery and not take any more chances? Because the whole point of having a mastectomy is to get rid of the cancer and to lessen my chances of recurrence. So I decided in that moment when he, he kind of put the, a fear in me that my cancer was so aggressive that it might return. And it usually does return in three years. If it's going to come back, there's this three-year window where it often will. Uh, thankfully, that's not the case with me. And uh, I'm fine. But yeah, so that's what made that's what helped me make the decision to not have reconstruction. I also made the decision to have a double mastectomy. They, my doctors, my surgeon, my radiologist all wanted me to have just the breast that had cancer removed. But I made the decision to, to have both of them removed. And what went into that decision? What was your thought behind that? A couple things. Um, the breasts were very similar in that they were dense and they were they had a lot of cysts and um, my oncologist said, well, you're just really going to have to keep an eye on the other one and have mammograms every six months. <laughs> and I said, no, I, no, I don't want to do that. I, I just want to eliminate any risk a hundred percent. So I had to kind of talk them into it. And I'm glad I made that decision. I I'm glad I had time because most women, if they are diagnosed with breast cancer, they have a mastectomy right away. That's the first thing out of the gate. But my tumor was 10 centimeters. It was too large. So they wanted to have me to have chemo first to shrink the tumor. So that gave me four months really to think about 
my choices, uh, which is more than some women get. So uh, that's what went into it. And I started to go online and I found all of these groups, all of these Facebook groups where women had made the same decision that I had, who were living their lives flat and who were very happy with their decisions or who had had reconstruction. Something had gone horribly wrong uh, with the surgery and they decided to have them removed and then go flat in that route. So this is, you know, this is how I made the choice. And I saw all of these wonderful, strong women living their lives like this. And I said, okay, you know, maybe that's what's for me. I know you're considered a cancer survivor once you make it five years and your five years was in 2022. Yes. So that is also the time that you made this other really big decision. Tell me about the choice to put a tattoo, a huge tattoo across your chest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's like I, 54 years old and, and getting a, a chest tattoo sounds kind of funny. But what happened was early on when I decided to go flat, one of my close friends said to me, you know, women get their chests tattooed post mastectomy. Some do it after, even after reconstruction because they have scars regardless. So you have scars, whether you're flat or you're not flat. So I said, Oh, they do. She said, then you'd have like a piece of art on your chest. And when you look in the mirror, it's just a more positive thing to look at. So I started to Google this and it was hard to find photos. Obviously it's a very personal thing. So the photos I found, I thought looked absolutely stunning. So this was years ago, right at the very beginning, but I decided to wait. It was something that I had been thinking about, but I wanted to heal. I had radiation on my chest, a lot of radiation, 25 rounds of it. Um, You know, I obviously had scar tissue. And so I kept putting it off, but it was something that I was constantly thinking about. And then on my fifth anniversary in May of 2022, I I got uh, the chest tattoo. I called I called a woman I had been researching in my area, looking looking for the just the right artist to do this because it's such a emotional, emotionally charged thing to do and personal. So I found a woman just for me, and uh, and we went ahead and and did the sunflower tattoos across my chest. And you kept it a secret, right? I did. You didn't really <laughs> I, tell anybody you were going to do this. No, I didn't even tell my husband. Although I we talked about it for years, but I when I made the decision to go and do it, I didn't I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my kids. I didn't tell my husband. My kids are older. I didn't say anything to anybody, not even a best friend. So I did tell one close friend only because I wanted her to come and document it and take a few photos. So she was the only one, top secret, to to stop by, take a few photos, and then uh, and that was it. So it was just between me and my tattoo artist at that point. And how did you pick your design? How did you pick the sunflowers? I've always loved sunflowers, but in particular, when I was going through treatment, I would see this particular painting everywhere of a sunflower, a local artist, uh, and it was a, a sunflower in a storm. So the petals were all blowing one way, the dark sky. I mean, I'm attracted to storms being in weather as well. But the whole thing with a sunflower, they say, is stand strong and face the sun. And I thought, that's what I'm doing here. That's what I'm doing through treatment. I am trying to face the sun. I am trying to be strong. I am trying to be positive and I'm trying to be a sunflower. And so the image of the sunflower I love and the 
the story behind the sunflower I also love. So it was that combination. And I said, here we go. Stand strong, face the sun. Everybody goes through tough times. And, I, you know, we don't have a lot of control over what happens to us, but we can control how we deal with things. And that's how I chose to deal with it. And you've since become an ambassador for Breast Cancer Canada, uh, an organization, a nationwide organization. Why is that so important to you? Hugely important. Breast Cancer Canada is an amazing foundation. I've been with them for five years as well. And all of their money goes into research. And they really, boy, they're always like, they really care about breast cancer survivors and they really care about finding a cure and making life better and new discoveries. And so, they did a new campaign where they rebranded. They were called the Breast Cancer Society of Canada. This year, they changed to Breast Cancer Canada after 35 years, I believe. And they did a whole campaign where they were featuring women who were thrivers. So I was part of the campaign. I said, I would like to show my tattoo in the campaign if they wanted to show it. I said, I had barely told anybody. It wasn't like I posted on social media. Once I had it, of course, I told my family and closest friends. I might have shared a picture over text and just said, that's it, do not share it with anybody. And I wanted to show women that this was a choice that they could have, that this was an alternative to reconstruction or, or just having scars and maybe not feeling great about how you feel about your body or you look at, you know, how your body looks. And I didn't see enough of this image when I went through breast cancer. I saw a little bit, like I said, but not enough. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to represent the flatties. That's what they call themselves. <laughs> and I wanted to show women going through breast cancer that this might be, this is, this might be something that they want to do. And I, I felt great about doing it. I felt great about my body. It really changed my self-esteem in such a positive way. And I thought I had a decent self-esteem, but this was really a game changer for me. So yeah, I went, I went all out, Amy. <laughs> you did. You put it all out there. That's fantastic. I, I believe the statistic is still one in four women get breast cancer. Um, I know Katie Couric recently said when she was diagnosed that, you know, sh the first question was, why me? And then she quickly changed it to, well, why not me? because it is just becoming so very common. So what advice do you have for people who are just getting their cancer diagnosis? Hmm. My big thing that I learned from this was to share your diagnosis. So many people are very private about this and I feel like it does nobody any good to not share the burden. You share with people, then all of your you know, community can help lift you through it. If you just rely on your partner or maybe, you know, a parent or a child, they carry then the entire burden, which is unfair and very difficult. But if you tell people, tell your friends, tell your family, don't keep it a secret, you will, it will come back to you a thousandfold. I mean, it it literally carried me through my entire journey. And not only that, then of course, then I found out that I was helping other people by, by being public because they're saying, well, I haven't told anybody or now I feel like I can talk about it, whatever the case. Just please do not keep it to yourself. And I feel like this message can be said about almost anything that's troubling people. 
because if you only tell one person, then, you know, they're carrying all of it. But your friends, your family, you probably don't know how good they can be and how they can bring their strength to you. So it's a small thing, but it's a huge thing is to share your diagnosis. And other than that, you know, get your mammograms and get to your doctors. <laughs> right. That's an awesome, amazing, fantastic takeaway from your from your journey. If people would like to see your photos or follow the rest of your journey, your continuing journey, where can they find you? So I have a blog called kmacblog.com. It documented my journey from the beginning of diagnosis to the end of my last treatment. And then I've added a couple of things, including my choice to have a tattoo and all of the photos are there if you choose to see them. And I just want to say that if breast cancer is caught early, uh, it is very, very treatable, much more treatable than it used to be. I'm here now almost six years after I was diagnosed and, and doing better than ever. So please don't be afraid to find out because the sooner you do, the, the better your chances of survival. Kim, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for sharing your story with Growing Boulder. I'm thrilled that you were willing to let us be a part of your journey. I'm so thrilled to be asked. Thank you so much, Amy. I really love this conversation. Up next, the story of a woman who is so grateful to be a breast cancer survivor that she's doing everything she can, even entering 5K running races to protect her reclaimed health. That's next on Growing Boulder. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Helen DeBowles didn't think that there was a light at the end of her journey. She was battling breast cancer and she was losing hope. But then her life changed when she found a running community and now she's proven to herself and to others that she can conquer just about any obstacle by finishing races of all lengths. Yeah, this is interesting, Mark, because it's not really a story about a runner or running in general. We met this woman when she signed up to run in the Growing Boulder Division powered by Florida Blue Medicare at Track Shack's You Can Finish 5-Mile Race out at the University of Central Florida. And she took a moment before the race started to think back to when her journey was at its lowest point. The road that I traveled, there was darkness at the end, and I didn't think there was a light. Helen DeBowles thought her life was over, facing chemo, radiation, and multiple surgeries for breast cancer. She had endured too much pain and was left feeling too little hope. Absolutely. People think that when they see cancer, they hear cancer. So, but I'm here to tell you it's not over. I woke up, <laughs> I got a kick in the butt, and um, I'm here. So I'm trying to just do this thing called life and keep moving ahead and show other women and men that they can do the same and don't just lay there and take it. Part of that kick in the butt was to take charge of her health. 
It's why she signed up for the Track Shack You Can Finish 5-Mile Run at the University of Central Florida. At race time, Helen was anxious, crowded in a sea of other runners, every age, every level of fitness, and every reason for being there. The start is always exhilarating, and Helen got off to a good one. She felt an inner confidence, something positive that came from nearly dying. Because she learned she was tougher than she thought. And she learned to harness that strength, that resolve, to fight for herself and for others as an example. Even her sister was there at the break of dawn to watch her run. Just like she said, she got me out of that bed this morning. I actually just went to sleep. I'm like, you know what? But because I know it's so dear to her heart to be here and it's so dear to her heart to fight, I couldn't stay in the bed either. I'm like, let me just get on up. So I got on up and I came and I'm going to be by her side all the way to the end. With her sister cheering, Helen was on the move. Two miles in and she was keeping a solid pace, steady and strong. 20 years ago, if we would have talked to you, would you ever have believed that you would be a runner? No. Absolutely not. I, I exercise and I'll run around the block or two, but to say this is five miles, I don't know. And five miles is a long way. Around the fourth, her knee began to stiffen. She tried to push through, but it kept getting worse. Would she have to stop, she wondered. <laughs> but Helen knows a little something about how to deal with pain. Don't give up. Always push through it. Perseverance, that's what it's all about. You'll see just what she means if you go to one of these races, stand near the finish line, and look at the faces. So many pushing, straining, fighting for every step, especially in the age 40 and up, growing Boulder Division, powered by Florida Blue Medicare, challenging their bodies, fighting for their fitness, testing their resolve. They are inspirations to everyone and Helen was not about to quit. So what makes it worth it? The finish line. <laughs> to, to get through it. What do you feel when you see that line, when you get there? When Ooh, you... like a burst of, yes, yes, yes. The energy pops up like, I'm here, I'm here, and just so overwhelming. And I, the last time I just started crying because I remember I said I was late and I didn't think I would make it, but... I did. It tells you your your Helen is alive. Absolutely, I'm alive and I'm a survivor. (laughs) And I want to keep pushing forward because life is good, and I don't want to leave right now. Helen DeBowles did it. At the age of 56, she conquered a five-mile run. This cancer survivor is out to show us that we can be so much stronger than we think. You okay? (laughs) It's me. Your knee was killing you the whole way through. You can barely fight through the pain. Why is it worth it? Because I didn't want to give up. I wanted to push through it. That's what I keep going back to, perseverance. Push, push, push. And it's well worth it in the end. What does it mean to you, Helen, every time you cross that finish line? I I accomplished something. I accomplished, and I didn't give up. It means a great deal. Because when you give up, it seems like I didn't try hard enough. But I didn't want to fail myself. So that's why I kept going. So what's your message, Helen? Never give up. 
believe in you and you will make it through. Yeah. <laughs> A very inspiring person who has fought through those lows, in her words, to earn the highs. Helen DeBowles, she doesn't consider herself an athlete by any means, and that's important because neither do a majority of the people who actually enter these events. Most are people like Helen who've decided to take charge of their health and give themselves the best chance possible at living a vibrant and active life. Something you might want to consider if it's for you. You'll find the running community in your area is about as supportive as any you can find. And if you don't want to run, maybe you'll want to dance. Because up next, a look back at a legend. This is a guy who was the creator of the Lindy Hop, known as the King of Swing. What was life like in his 90s? You'll hear for yourself next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. You know the name Frankie Manning? He was a legend, the inventor of the Lindy Hop dance, and boy, was he an inspiration. You know, he never stopped dancing until he passed away at 94. In fact, in his 90s, he was still traveling the world, putting on exhibitions and delighting everyone who had the chance to meet him. Man, wouldn't it be great to talk to him about it? Well, we did back in 2007, and we know you're going to love the chance to hear it once again. Here is a Growing Boulder classic interview with Frankie Manning. Take me back to the day, you know, when the Lindy Hop uh, was, was, first came around. I know back in the days of the Harlem at the Savoy Theater, you were the man. When you hit the floor, everybody just kind of stood back and watched you do your thing. Oh, and well, not really. <laughs> that, that's how I hear it. <laughs> uh, because uh, back in those days, I mean, everybody felt like they could dance, you know. Right. Well, that's uh, like but, today, but isn't it? Of course, but of course, they always had... Some you know some people who are more who are better than others, and some that who out who was outstanding, you know. Um, it's not that everybody stood back, but everybody gave you a chance to show what you had, and if if what you had was better than what they had then they'll stop and look at you. Well, I don't think anybody had more than you did, based upon what I've read, because I've read about a famous showdown where you and your partner, Frida Washington, outdanced Shorty and his partner, Big B, and just stunned the crowd of uh, about 2,000 when you performed the first ever Lindy Air Step, an aerial move, right? Yes, boy, that was a moment, Jim. <laughs> it was a moment in my life, because uh, I, I was just as, as, as stunned as the people were for, from the reception that I received when I did the air step, you know, I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> had you practiced it, Frankie? I mean, you knew it was coming. Are you kidding? Oh man, I you know I had the idea of doing the step, but I didn't I didn't have the first idea of how to do the step. You just it was a spontaneous thing. No, oh. no way. No, I, I had the idea of doing the step, and I was trying to get my partner to do it, and neither one of us knew how to go into it or anything like that because uh, 
back in those days, we didn't have no schools that was teaching any anything like that, you know. So, uh, so yeah, we practiced. I was trying to, we were trying to get it together, and we finally did. Uh, you, uh, you were the man, and uh, you had to be thrilled when, when when swing had a revival in the in the '80s, uh, Frankie. And I know you were largely responsible for that as well. You've you've choreographed a lot of films. You've been in some big films. Well, yes, I, I, it was it was quite a revelation for me, and it was a, a very heartwarming to see so many people getting out there trying to do the Lindy Hop, and some that were actually doing it very well. Uh, uh, which is something that I had always wanted. You know, I always had this work, this idea. I, w- I wish, I wish the whole world could do the Lindy Hop and see how good it made you feel. <laughs> well, I wish the whole world could hear you talk because uh, I think it would make them feel good, Frankie. Yeah, are, are you really ninety-two? I'm really 92, yes. Well, let me ask you this then, because I read that you've got a birthday tradition, that uh, every time you, you have a new birthday, uh, you have a big party with all your friends, and, and you dance with one woman for every year of your life, and uh, that would mean that you, you dance with eight, uh, 92 women in succession this year? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How long did that take? I, I don't know, man. I just danced. <laughs> did, did you pull I just any? Danced did, until he stopped. I mean, until there wasn't any more women to dance. <laughs> did you Did you pull any of those aerial moves? No, no. I, that, that's long past. I don't do that anymore. But but you still do dance, don't you? I dance. Yes, of course. Yeah, and you travel the country putting on workshops. Oh yes, I travel the country, and uh, uh, not just the country. I travel around the world. Uh, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, today is Saturday. Next week, Saturday, I will actually be in Stockholm, Sweden. Is that right? Yes. A- at 92 years old, that that is just fabulous. Do you worry about traveling at that age? Do you ever do? do you worry? Wor- what do you, what, what's that to worry about? Uh, you know, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> you, you just you just get out there and go, don't you? Well, is there is there a secret, Frankie? Can you share something with us? Can you give us a little bit of? Uh, there, there is no secret. Only thing I I tell people, I say. I dance, and I love to dance, and I love people. I love to see people looking happy, and I love to see them getting out there dancing and being happy while they're dancing. And uh, I, and I just think dancing is what kept me alive uh, because, I honestly, I feel that if, if I wasn't dancing, I wouldn't be here today. What a dynamic person. And, you know, Bill, what a blessing uh, to have these interviews, to be able to go back and revisit them, you know, decades later and, you know, still remember the time that we spent with Frankie. What an incredible guy. And, folks, did he sound like he was 92 years old? You know, he passed away one month before his 95th birthday. But I have to tell you, he was dancing right up until the end. His passion, his insights, his life experiences still an inspiration. The legendary Frankie Manning in a Growing Boulder classic interview. It's great to look back on these because he's one in a long list of people who have been so memorable. And Mark, even though they're not with us anymore, the lessons we can learn from them are just as valid, maybe even more valid now with hindsight than they were when we actually did them. That's kind of what's been on my mind lately. I, I wonder... <laughs> I wonder if this is the segment in the show where we find out what's on your mind. You know, we could talk about Frankie for the next two minutes, and I'd be happy with that. But, but you know, Bill, I love me uh, a good bit of research. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. And, you know, we talked on this program a while ago about a research project with mice. Uh, another one has come up. And, and you know, th- these things to me are interesting, but there is not a whole lot of 
connection and relevance between what we can do with mice and what we can do in human beings, but that's where they start. And uh, the thing that's on my mind today, because I just read this this past week, is that there uh, was a research project. Scientists working in a laboratory in Boston did a project that they ended up calling the, the Benjamin Buttons Project. They say, they claim that they have actually reversed the age in mice through genetic therapy, genetic intervention, that they have now made these mice young, and they say this could cure aging and make everybody healthy again. And here's my problem with that. If just making somebody young made them healthy, we would not have the epidemic of childhood obesity that we have now, the epidemic of diabetes, the epidemic of suicide. You know, there, there are health problems that we have throughout our life that have nothing to do with age. And to me, these kinds of statements do more harm than they do good because they lead people to believe that maybe there will be, you know, some sort of hope where they can recapture their youth, where they can regain their health without having to do anything on their own. And as we know, that's not the, that's not the truth. Health is something you got to earn. Longevity is something you got to earn. You have to pay the price or you don't get it. It's really interesting because what you're basically saying is that if somebody tells you that they found a cure for aging then aging must be a disease. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's if you're waiting for that cure, to me, it's like the people, you know, and God bless people that don't have any money but buy a lottery ticket every single week because that is their retirement. If they don't win the lottery, they don't have a retirement. You know, to me, waiting on this pill that's going to cure aging is like, hoping the lottery will solve your financial problems as you get older. Uh, folks, the odds are not good. Uh, we need to take action today to modify our own lifestyle, to live a healthier life on a daily basis. So do what Mark Middleton says, folks. Invest in your life. Get out there. Be the best you you can possibly be. Enjoy every minute you can because that is Growing Boulder. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I.